Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. This is the Abby Normal Podcast, here to tell you that you're weird and that's normal. On this show, I probably talked to a hundred folks about things that made them feel weird or made other people feel weird. Addiction, body image, the first time you had sex, breaking up with friends, going to jail, race, sexual identity, etc. These are pretty personal topics that require a level of vulnerability to share. But no one I've asked to be on this show has ever said no until this topic. When I decided to set out on telling these stories, I emailed a friend who attends church and asked if he wanted to talk to me about his involvement with Christianity. His kind reply was, I'm going to pass. And I was like, hmm, that's interesting. My first rejection. According to Pew Research, 65% of Americans describe themselves as Christians. So I really didn't consider that it would be hard to find Christians on the margin willing to talk to me. Three more rejections later, and I realized that faith might be the one topic too weird for the Abby Normal podcast. My theory was that there were other people like me, raised in the Christian church, disillusioned with its current state, quietly making changes, and honestly wondering if there's a faith community for them. So I was like a dog with a bone. Christians who don't fit into a box are my specific brand of weird, and I wanted to find them. So I did, eventually. This series is each of their stories. And I have to tell you from the get-go that there are no tidy resolutions. There are life stories with spiritual beginnings, middles, and ends. But the end is just a snapshot in time. No pretty bow with a neat checklist of how to live your life. These are the lives of your friends, neighbors, and coworkers, sharing parts of them that you don't often get to see. I was raised in the Christian church. I bet you have a specific picture in your mind of what that means, and that picture is different for every person because our own experiences, upbringing, interactions, and media consumption all amalgamate to create a picture of someone who was raised in the Christian church. So to clarify a tiny bit, I was raised in the evangelical, predominantly white church of California's Central Valley in the United States of America in the 1980s and 1990s. It's actually a quite specific place and time in culture. It has its own traditions, norms, practices, theology, and language. And because most people in my community participated in the EWCCCV, I basically assumed that my culture was the world. Here's me with fellow Valley Girl, Emily. I guess I assume that everybody does know the songs that we sang and the ideas that we believed just because I've been, even though I don't claim to be that anymore, like even now I'm still like in communities where that's like normal, I guess. Yeah. 
No, and especially in California, we have like a specific genre of it. And a genre, especially from the exactly. valley. Like yes. we even have a more specific genre of it mm-hmm. that isn't like Atlanta, like, or, you know, like the, the South the, in that form of evangelical right? stuff. And it's not the Midwest and the stuff they've got. Like yeah. the Bible Belt of California is a really specific genre of right. evangelicalism. Right. I would say maybe even the West Coast because yeah. like I think it spans like L.A. also. Yeah. Sure. Although LA's got that like Hollywood version of it, which is yeah. like the Justin Bieber, like they've right, got him right, in there, right. like that. Is but yeah, all the, all the way down to like San Diego, those mega churches, like oh it's yeah, the same flavor, it's the same, it is same language, right? Like it's a very specific language. Mm-hmm. I think you get it in Texas too. I think there's some exchange there for sure. I think listeners of this show fall into two camps. One, you all know exactly what I'm talking about. You know evangelicals. The second group have no idea what the f*** I'm talking about. You don't hang with evangelicals and don't know anything about them except that they're Trump supporters and probably anti-choice. So this episode sets the scene, a baseline understanding for what you'll hear moving forward. We're not going to make any assumptions about evangelicals in general. Instead, we're going to lay out some of the key cultural components from our limited point of view. I started by conning my partner, Aaron, who also grew up within this framework, to share his experiences. So you're super excited to be here. No. (laughs) To talk about your evangelical upbringing. No. It's your favorite topic. It's not. (laughs) You'll also hear the voices of those who said yes to my terrifying request to come and talk about church, like Emily. Here's her Enneagram number. I think I'm a two. A helper. Oh, a helper. Helper. The three's the achiever. But I'm like, I, I'm a three wing. Right. That makes sense. I think I'm a seven. The enthusiast. Fun. Yes. That, the that enthusiast. makes sense. That's yes. why I have a podcast yes. in your garage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and these folks who are not from the Central Valley, but have very similar evangelical experiences. Keith. Feel special, unique, yeah. like my Enneagram four. <laughs> That's right. The individualist. Interesting. Yeah, but really like the desire to be unique. Jason. I'm an Enneagram 4. We can talk about Enneagram at some point if you want to. All the Enneagram 4s listening right now are going to just smile ear to ear when I say this. But I was supposed to be born on like December 24th, December 25th, which helps my Christ complex <laughs> so much and my importance and my value uh-huh. and my worth. We are not going to talk about Enneagram ever again in this series, but it's hot right now. So there you go. Then we have Tiffany. I was always very the good church girl. And her BFF, Kenny. A Sagittarius? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I love pop music. So they're all getting Aaron's back a bit on this episode. Okay, let's get into it. We're going to start with all the things that made up the evangelical lifestyle, which starts with church and a lot of it. Always. All the time. <laughs> Wednesday, youth group. Sunday, well, first there was youth group, and then there was big church. And big church, you always were trying to figure out how to get out of it because it was so boring. So there was two services in the morning. One was Sunday school with your age bracket, then big church where everyone was together. Okay, so we had morning church and Sunday school and, you know, lunch with people from church after church. Then we'd all go home and like take a nap and put on our more relaxed clothes, more relaxed casual clothes and come back to church okay. after dinner. 
church on Sunday morning for three hours, Sunday school, church. Then we would go have dinner, which is technically lunch, with everyone else in our family. What goes on in youth group? Wednesdays were casual hangout with Jesus time. Wednesday nights were for sure games, a talk, group discussions. Maybe they called it Bible study. And occasionally I think we did music. Okay. I don't think that was weekly. And then Sunday mornings were like a mirror image of big church, as we called it. Yes. Just with young people. It's supposed to be hip. So we did music for sure. And then there would be like a sermon from the youth pastor and then more music, classic format. <laughs> a little bit of music before, talky talk in the middle, music at the end. How do we get out of big church? I mean, by high school, I was at People's. So it was like so big. There's so many kids there. That it was very much like big church style. Oh, you went you went to the rich people church. <laughs> you fancy. Well, my parents were at the poor people church where I grew up. And then I was like, there's not enough cute boys here. Oh, it wasn't bougie enough for you? <laughs> no, I was like, I've known all of these boys since I was a child. I need to find new boys. That was the entire goal. I see. I mean, didn't you also meet your girlfriend at church? church mm -hmm. that's yeah. why you can't remember any service because yeah. you were scoping her out no i remember but look at how well that worked out yeah. youth group is not where you should meet your significant other <sighs> no probably if life not. has taught me any lessons you should meet them in the bar <laughs> that's right <laughs> the bar is where our happy union occurred Bible is the hot topic at church. So in small groups, there would be reading of specific scriptures and then sermon or discussion about how that verse applies to your life, usually what you need to change to be a better Christian. There was also scripture memorization and out loud prayer. Bible study small groups, which is really just like, what boy are you into right now? Like I do remember like in the faith club, we would have like moments where we shared our devotionals. I can kick your ass in Bible trivia. There was fun stuff too. Water skiing trips and we did snow skiing trips. There was definitely water skiing trips. In the summertime you went to people's houses that had pools. Oh yeah. There's like sort of a barbecue and swimming in the pool. Yeah. But then I also had, like, at least one band practice every week for, like, the church band. Right, for youth group. Youth group church band. Yeah, not big church church right. band. <laughs> that was old people. Thank you. The Thank worship you. band was kind of a big deal. Let's give it up for Jesus. Worship involved the band playing three songs at the beginning of church and two at the end. The lights would dim, the words to the song projected onto a screen in front, and then everyone sang. You could stare straight ahead, or bow your head and close your eyes, or if you were super into it, raise your arms above your head in a yay God stance. Aaron's gonna tell us how he got into being on the worship team. Worship band, 
you were like about that life. Yeah. I mean, did you volunteer to be in it or they were just like, oh, we just heard you play bass. So you should probably do this. Well, thing. that's just it. I didn't play bass. <gasps> you didn't? No. This is like how you discovered your musical career. My, my musical career. Yeah. <laughs> what a pathetic life career. Long. <laughs> uh, yeah. My career that I've made zero dollars doing. So they were like doing this thing to like. We were taking like guitar lessons from like a youth pastor or something, and I was not very good. Uh, and then like when we got to high school, I think that's what my friends were doing. So like I wanted to play, but I was the the worst guitar player. So then I just got relegated to bass. <laughs> like the guy who was in charge of music had like a bass and an amp, and he was like here. And so that's how I started playing bass for like months. We'd be like playing and I wouldn't know the song. So I would just like turn my volume down and just pretend I was like lip syncing with my bass. <laughs> Eventually I got the hang of it. I mean, honestly, I kind of hated it. Yeah. A little bit. We did like the church songs, but then like our, Worship leader, I guess is what you would have called him, even though he was a fellow high schooler, like wrote songs. So we were very much like his band and I hated his music. It was so, you know, I was like this little punk rock, heavy metal kid or whatever. Like that's what I liked. And it was just the softest shit ever. Oh my gosh. Did you play his songs at church or like? Sometimes. Okay. We played at other churches. We played at a lot of other churches. You like toured with this guy's <laughs> music. I mean, it was all in the same city. We never went anywhere, but we played at like lots of other churches. So in that way, we were a little bit cliquish and there were like other students who wanted to participate in the worship band. The one I'm thinking of in particular was this kid that played the drums who was not good. And we had like a really good drummer. So like there was this whole hubbub about like we didn't want him to play because we already had a drummer who was really good. and We didn't want to trade off. And it was like a whole hubbub. I just remember us being like dicks about not wanting to play with. Yeah, like throwing a little hissy fit about how you didn't want him. Yeah, exactly. Although that's an attitude that's stuck with me to this day. I really hate playing with bad drummers. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, it's different. Right, because, so, there there was a difference between, like, being in this volunteer church worship team where definitely probably anybody should be able, with at least a passable skill, should be able to uh, participate as opposed to, like, when I'm in a band now. Yeah. In this particular Sunday morning thing, yeah, we were just... I would say we were out of line. We definitely, like, got a little bit mean girls about it, like, trying to figure out how to exclude yeah. people, which is a little bit interesting in that, you know, some of your other interviewers talked about how, like, youth group church was, like, their safe space. For me, it was, like, exactly, like... It was high school without cussing. <laughs> right. It was high school with additional sexual and what would you say about like 
swearing. What would you call that? Right, it was high school, but with like an extra layer of shame. <laughs> Not just the usual stuff like you looked weird or didn't wear the cool clothes. It was also like you weren't a very good Christian or don't touch your penis. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it was just it was like high school it sucked. Just like high school, there were in-groups and out-groups. And even though Aaron had what many perceived as the privilege of being on the worship team, he never really felt like youth group was a safe space. But we have a lot of church music folks in this series. By this point, I had been leading worship for two years probably. But I was always involved in music. It was a music extravaganza. So the church had a choir and a full orchestra every Sunday. And then there was a whole children's choir program that started in four-year-olds and went up through high school. Being a person that, like, you know, would sing songs and lead worship and I even directed the choir. It wasn't just church worship bands. Music was a big part of the Christian youth scene. I went to tons of, quote, Christian rock concerts and shows. Did you have the same? Like, all of them. <laughs> like every first of all, all the bands came through Fresno was hot shit. <laughs> yeah, like do you remember that you said that like festival that happened in Tulare? Do you remember what I'm talking about? It's like we're the same place where they held the farm show, but it was basically like a uh, Coachella that didn't exist yet, but it was like very much like an all day like Christian bands affair. Totally, and I definitely remember going to go see. MXPX at those and this band called Plank Eye that we really liked. Anyway, that summer we performed at basically the equivalent of Lollapalooza for Christian bands <laughs> uh, in Monterey. Carmen was there. We hung out a little bit at dinner with Cademan's Call. There were definitely actually some pretty good bands in that scene, but you had to like dig pretty deep in the bins to find out about them. I mean, there was definitely an evolution from our early Amy Grant concert days. Oh, God. <laughs> like Michael W. Michael Smith. W. Smith. Yeah. Stephen Curtis Chapman. Yep. So there was an, definitely an evolution from them into like the 90s music. Uh, Yeah. So like when that label Tooth and Nail came out, then there was like sort of a lot of cool bands. Like Starflyer 59, Pedro the Lion, which still, I love that band. And I loved the Newsboys, so. Oh my God, that's <laughs> fucking embarrassing. <laughs> and my all-time favorite, my all-time favorite, the OC Supertones. Uh, as, as far as that like whole third wave ska thing, like they were pretty good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, there were some legitimate bands, but I we weren't playing that kind of music. So I found what we played pretty embarrassing. <laughs> like, oh my God. So one time we played like we would have once a week or something like that bands at lunchtime, like played out on the quad. At school? At school. Oh no. And we did that. And I was just like trying to just be invisible <laughs> that is so embarrassing you have no idea
Aaron continued his church music hobby after high school. He's eager to tell you about it. Can you tell us about the band that you toured with to the UK? Uh, I'd really rather not. But it's so good. I think I still owe them like money for that trip. Nope. <laughs> Hard pass on that. <laughs> yeah, I like we were supposed to raise money to go, and I definitely did not raise like hardly any money. Uh huh. Which, when I look at it in retrospect, like you should be paying me to do this. What was the stated purpose, and what was your actual purpose for going? I went because I got asked. Uh, but it was, you know, like some sort of missions trip, like music outreach. Right. So the idea is we're going to go, we're going to play some cool songs. People are going to come listen. And then we're going to be like, do you want to accept Jesus into your heart? Yes. Right. That's the whole thing. And I think it had been this thing where like they'd been doing this since like the seventies or something. Wow. And it was called light stream. That's what they've called the band it had the same name for like. It's entire existence, which is just, I don't know, maybe like in the 70s, that name was cool. Heck yeah. But as like an 18 or 19 year old in the late 90s during, I guess I would have been like sort of post grunge, but you know, like just almost sure I did not tell a single person I know what this thing was called or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember seeing you guys and I thought you were so cool. Uh, we were not cool for sure, but I mean, we were good. Like all the musicians were good, but it was just like, it was like a Christian cover band. Yeah. Yeah. So that's kind of cool. I mean, obviously he wasn't stoked on the premise of the trip, but a little trip to Europe playing music not so bad. The whole thing touches so many points of your day-to-day life. Wednesday youth group, Sunday church, summer pool parties and beach trips and concerts. And then a couple times a year, you also have special events in town and out. Okay, did you do any conferences? All right, so I went to Promise Keepers. Yes. Twice. Twice. Yeah. Um, Now I know why you're such a good Promise Keeper. (laughs) (laughs) So we went to, they did that one that was like the Million Man March that was in D.C. Wasn't that like a civil rights thing? Here's where we got confused. Both events were held on the National Mall and got compared regularly because they had similar messaging for men. But the Million Man March was in 1995 and Promise Keepers was in 1997. Promise Keepers was a relatively new all-male evangelical movement. Organizers said their goal was to reverse the moral and social deterioration caused by men abandoning their family responsibilities. Back to Promise Keepers. We went to that. My dad took us to that. We were in high school, so, like, what the f*** is Promise Keepers? Like, sort of not applicable. And then we went to it when it came to Fresno. And the only thing I remember is it was so hot that we left early. Terrible. Uh-huh. So what, like, kinds of messages maybe were shared at those? I don't know. I didn't listen. <laughs> you didn't. I was in high school. You have no idea what kind of man you're supposed to be. 
Uh, I mean, something tells me not whatever they were describing at Promise Keepers. <laughs> or you'd probably like not be working outside of the home or something. Mm-hmm. Have more children. Mm-hmm. There was that, and I definitely went to one in Chicago. Oh, my gosh. Called Urbana. That was kind of a missions conference. What's that mean? I don't know. It was about missions, going on missions. I don't remember a lot about that one either. Urbana is put on by InterVarsity. It's indeed a student missions conference. It's actually still happening. And the website says... Through Urbana, movements have been born, lives saved, and unreached peoples touched by Christ's hands and feet. That's a really difficult sentence to say. That's it. No. I don't remember any more conferences. Here, Aaron pretends he doesn't remember any more conferences, but he's missing a big category. Didn't you go to like a purity culture one? Uh, well, yeah, sure. There was like that, like a bunch of churches did this like purity thing. You had to, like, sign, like, a purity pledge. I don't I was on drugs during that one. You clearly did not sign your pledge. I might have. But, like, I was on drugs. So, <laughs> so you can't be held accountable to it? <laughs> yeah. Just a friend of mine and myself thought it would be a nifty idea to go under the influence. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, for this church event? Yeah. Yeah, that was a good idea. It wasn't. <laughs> I think I got in a lot of trouble for that, actually. What? Yeah, I had, like, told, like, a friend that I got into trouble with sometimes who lived down the street. And I told her, like, what we had done. And for reasons that I'm not clear on, she told my parents. No. Yeah, so I got in, like, a lot of trouble. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Did I, like, go see a therapist? You did? (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, you can A, don't do drugs. B, don't do drugs at church. The whole, like, true love waits uh-huh. thing and the abstinence movement. And, like, he asked me if I signed the card earlier. And I was like, yeah, I kind of signed the card and wore the ring. And it was kind of like <laughs> this, like, which is, like, weird. Because, like, yeah, there's no ring that should go on your on your wedding finger. Like, that's just, I look back and I'm like, dude, how was this a good idea? Right. Like, this the was hell? the worst. Yep, there were purity rings and pledges and virginity chants. Anyway, during spring break and summertime, there were also missions trips. When I was in high school, we did a missions trip to Mexico every year during spring break for the whole week. Okay, what did you do? We had vacation Bible schools for kids that that were already at churches in Mexico, I guess. What's vacation Bible school? It's like Sunday school. We would sing songs and do like games and like Bible lessons for tiny children. I'm not really sure why, but that's what we did. Okay. We like would drive in a van caravan. I'm pretty sure there was like hundreds of us. And we would sleep in these giant army tents in this field. And they would always like plow the field before we got there so there would be bugs all over the place like giant centipedes and spiders and earwigs (laughs) and oh they would like dig uh 
restrooms and like build these outhouses. So we slept in this field and then they drive us to these churches every day. And we do these vacation Bible schools. And I think maybe we also did like witnessing. We walk around and randomly talk to people about Jesus, which is super awkward in English. And it's even more awkward when you need a translator. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thinking back on it, like, what the f*** was that about? Yeah. Like, they don't they, they don't know who God is in Mexico? It's like the <laughs> biggest Catholic country in the world, probably. Uh-huh. 91% of the total population. It's the second largest Catholic country behind Brazil. Like, yeah. But we got to go down there and tell them about Jesus? No, they uh, didn't need that. They probably did not need that. <laughs> That is the first place I ever experienced a fish taco, though, and it was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And like, seriously, how much can, like, a bunch of weak-ass white kids do to, like, help a church? Like, did they seriously need us, like, laying cement or digging holes? Or- well, that's just it. We weren't doing any of that. Probably the most impactful thing we did on those trips was, like, annoy people. I mean, maybe they appreciated, like, the child care services for the day. I don't know. I mean, maybe. I almost think it would have been more useful had you been doing some sort of Habitat for Humanity thing, at least. like 100%. Uh, whatever. Anyway, I don't like to think about these things. Because it makes you feel bad inside. Yeah. Yeah. It makes me feel bad inside. You're a little embarrassed. Uh, like, a lot embarrassed. I'm pretty <laughs> sure I'm not going to let you tell any of this. <laughs> Put your episode you're, together. You're not alone, Aaron. Yeah, but it's just like all feels so very shameful now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you know better, do better. <laughs> <laughs> On my missions trips to Mexico, we took construction folks with us and built new church buildings. So though I too have shame about the white savior mentality, at least we left them with something useful dot 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 question mark when Keith went on a mission to Mexico he hid in the bathroom pretending to poop for hours to get out of laying cement he was smart enough to share that after his microphone was off here's Emily talking about her missions you go up to people you like introduce yourself that way and then you start conversation and then eventually you say like Steer it towards spirituality. Yeah. It's so terrible. <laughs> yeah, and hope that like they want to talk about Jesus eventually. Yeah. Do they? Well, most don't. Most don't care. What might make a teenage boy give up his spring break to sleep in a field and crap in a porta potty? To understand that, we have to get into the actual belief system Aaron was a part of for 20 years. He's going to explain the top two messages received in church. Here's number one. If you don't tell your friends about Jesus, they will go to hell. And that's on you. Were you concerned about that? I mean, it just felt like a lot. It's like being told to go do a job that you really don't want to do. 
and then being like, it all just feels very much out of obligation when you put it like that. Mm -hmm. Oh my God, there's this other thing that we used to have to do. I, I feel like this was in preparation for one of the other trips, you know, you'd go on. But I, I, I have distinct memories of going to specific places, uh, Woodward Park and like Venice Beach to like go just walk around and like hand people religious tracks and just like try to do like on the spot evangelism evangelism and savings and then and then you get back and you'd be like how many people did you like lead to christ it's just like oh this is a f-ing contest like because i think about if somebody approached me like that now i would just be like well i don't know what i would say <laughs> i don't know if i would feel bad for them yeah or if i would just be like oh my god fuck off with that shit <laughs> Like, has this ever worked? I mean, in what capacity did it work, right? Somebody inevitably always said, like, oh, we led a person to Christ. But what did that really mean? Mm -hmm. Like, did we ever see those people again? Did they, like, come to the church? Did they go to any church after that? Mm -hmm. Or were they just like, maybe if I do this, these dumb kids will go away? Like... I don't know how many people came to cry. I'm doing air quotes, by the way, came to Christ just through like politeness. Mm-hmm. So weird. So weird. <laughs> I just remember like walking around and it's just like they normally like partner up and you're basically just goading each other to be the first one to go talk to somebody. And those tracks How much litter must those tracks be responsible for in this world? You know, at at church, they would preach about like trying to get you to be a really bold Christian that was outspoken and evangelical and like invited people and like led people to Christ and all this other stuff. But then you're at school and you're like, I'm just trying to get through the damn day. Here's the number two message. Uh, Don't have sex ever, mm-hmm. ever. I'm not even clear if you're allowed to once you get married. I mean, you can't enjoy it, that's for sure. I mean. Unless you have a super hot wife. Uh, <laughs> I don't remember any of my pastors making the, like, my smoking hot wife comment. But that is a weird thing phenomena like in the right like on the one hand they're being like i don't even know where to start (laughs) it's big ball of wax to unravel well right it's just like the um well first of all it's like totally the ladies problem of of how they dress and present because apparently men cannot control themselves so it's it's on you not to tempt me which And then, like, to top it off, now you want to talk about how hot your wife is. Like, do you want me to being like, oh, you're right. Your wife is pretty hot. (laughs) Like, what the f*** is that about? Weirdos. 
also, I'm literally just putting two and two together, but like on the last Mars Hill episode, I'm referring to a podcast we were obsessively listening to, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It had a couple different pastors like talking about infidelity and talking about it like, well, you know, a lot of you ladies out there, like, let it go. Like, you get married and you rope the guy in and then you let yourself go. And so then his eye wanders, blah, blah, blah. That is f***ed up just on its own, right? But if you add that in combination to this whole idea that before marriage, women need to be, like, very modest and cover their bodies and not tempt men, and then you have this message after they're married that they need to, like, whatever societal standards to keep themselves up in the eyes of their husbands. Like it's a, it's a losing game. So I have not finished that episode, but I did, I think get to that part. And my first thought was like, you know, in pitch perfect when fat Amy's like, you know, panty dropper yourself. Like <laughs> how many of these men look like in prizes, bunch of like khaki braided belt, you know, just like the most boring blue tucked in shirt <laughs> loafer ass wearing just like country club light. I don't know how to describe it. Right. But uh-huh. yeah, you're no panty dropper yourself. <laughs> Worried about your wife letting herself go. <laughs> My God, f- you double chin. Infuriating. You kiss your wife with that lumpy red face. <laughs> I just want to say that I'm not fat shaming as an overweight person myself. <laughs> no. Just saying, like, bro, these gentlemen on. are not Chippendale's calendar material. <laughs> and so that all of a sudden they expect their wife to be, I mean, of that era, what, like Carmen Electra, Pamela Anderson. Or, right. Yeah. Well, and that you go from, you know, again, that transition, the smoking hot wife thing, like, Definitely can't have premarital sex. If you have, like, thoughts about sex, that is also wrong. Like, if you're tempted or being lustful or whatever, that's wrong. Then you get married, and then they just try to pretend it's just, like, on, like, Donkey Kong, which I don't think that that mental shift can necessarily happen for everyone in a healthy way. I mean, it probably didn't. No. No. I mean, do you remember, like, having friends that, like, did things, like, not kiss each other before they got married. Yeah, totally. Like, just like the extremes. And I'm not even clear on what is the actual message of the uh, Bible there on the whole. Uh, I mean, the guy who wrote that one book is very much not happy he wrote it. No. No, I mean, that's the thing is that the Bible isn't actually clear what the term sexual immorality or whatever means like culturally it was totally different then and yet we're trying to wrap it up and make it applicable for people in the year of our lord 2021 this podcast is not about hashing out theology or dissecting biblical scripture y'all ain't got time for that But the takeaway here is that the sex purity message was second only to the Jesus Saves message. There's a lot wrapped up there. So believe me, we will talk about sex and sexuality in future episodes. Ask a 
abstinence, 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 which is very, you know, late 90s sort of thing. All right. So it was, and then just kind of this sense of pride around like, yeah, I don't, you know, yeah. I haven't had sex. I'm not going to. Granted, like, come to find out later, like, of course, I totally know why I didn't, you know. <laughs> like purity culture stuff. Um, yeah, the idea that I should not trust the flesh or not trust the body. This idea that in the evangelical world, you're taught to not trust yourself from a very early age. Your mind and your heart are deceitful above all else, and you need to ignore them and pursue what is true and right and good. Yep. The cornerstone of evangelicalism is that there's a moment that you pray to ask Jesus into your heart and ask him to forgive your sins. That's what all the witnessing and missions trips are about. We've all prayed that prayer. So according to their theology, we're good. Did you have a moment where you like prayed the prayer and got saved? Yeah, I was like six. So so the legend goes. Mm-hmm. Um, I was baptized when I was five. Mm-hmm. And I was probably like four or five I didn't know what I was doing and so like I raised my hand I'm like I, I want to rededicate or I want to dedicate my life to Jesus they're like if you want to give your life to Jesus come down here and I was like okay cool but I definitely like probably at like every event you rededicated probably because <laughs> you know because you were a hell of sinning so always <laughs> I mean I went to church on drugs <laughs> you had definitely had some repenting to do The rededicating part is more casual ceremonial. It's just to reconfirm the prayer you prayed. You've done some shit and you need to get back on track. We've got a lot of saved people in this series with mystical moments of divine love and caring community with spiritual questions leading to clarity and peace. But what they all have in common is that at one time they lived in absolute truths, and then those truths fell one by one, through heartbreak and betrayal or the journey of self-awareness, or in small moments that revealed the rot. Remember one time I was a waiter, and and this is definitely where I started developing or it definitely is like a link in the chain of my di- growing distaste of like church or the modern church or evangel. I don't know which organization it is, but like basically everybody hated working Sundays and that's because the church crowd sucked. They were like super demanding. Uh, they stole shit. You know, they would order like one salad bar and then like the whole table would like try to eat off one salad bar thing and they didn't tip for shit. (laughs) I remember one time I was cleaning the table and like sitting underneath the like sugar container. There was like a $20 bill sticking out. I was like, I worked at like a crap restaurant. I went to get it and I pulled it out and it was like only half as long as a $20 bill and it was a religious track. No. I just remember thinking to myself that Jesus may love you, but I think you're a 
fucking asshole. <laughs> that is seriously so rude. Right? <laughs> so it's this so sort mean. of it's this sort of bullshit, just like the sense of entitlement that came. Oh my gosh. And talk about just totally missing the point, right? Like if the point is what Jesus did, which is like to serve humanity and love humanity in really tangible ways, feeding the poor, like, you know, all this stuff. And instead of actually supporting waiters that probably need a little bit more tip money, you're going to give them a track. Yeah. (laughs) Because there's nothing like paying your rent with the unconditional love of Jesus. (laughs) Aaron mentioned one link in the chain of dissatisfaction with the evangelical church. And by the mid-2000s when we met, that chain had grown long and heavy. And we'd already deconstructed many of the messages that we had received. Here's one example. Aren't you happy that I have deconstructed gender roles and don't expect you to be the leadership of this family? It's probably a good thing. I'm ill-equipped for that job. Did you try to be that in your first marriage? Oh, no. No, you you knew from the get-go. <laughs> that first marriage was pure chaos. Yeah. I mean, we were too young to be married, trying to live ideals we probably didn't even understand. Mm-hmm. And I was not a good boyfriend, much less a good <laughs> husband. Like, yeah, still like an overly hormonal young adult. I couldn't have a rational argument. I totally remember having those kind of expectations of my husband in my first marriage, though, when we were literal teenagers. And I thought that he should be the one, like, making all of the good, wise decisions for us. Yeah, he wasn't equipped for that job. Of course not. He's a child. Yeah. And that's just, like, setting up so much disappointment. Yeah. Which, obviously, I know now should not have been put on his shoulders he was a nice guy that could not live up to the expectations that the church had put upon us nobody can abby nor could i (laughs) but here's the weird thing we still had a desire deep down to be part of a faith community we just had no idea where to go to find one that fit us right where we were at. We had moved to the San Francisco Bay Area with a new baby and basically a new life. And so over the next 10 years, we tried at least 10 churches. Some for one visit, like the Church of Practical Christianity, and others with names I don't remember, like the one where everyone hugged us. Uh, The ones where they hug you? (laughs) I hate that. Just like, I've never been here before. I don't know you. Don't hug me. Like, you're coming on too strong the one where the pastor said to throw out your science books the one where the pastor was leaving under questionable circumstances and people were crying then there were some that we went to multiple times one in oakland that seemed promising and then one sunday the pastor railed against guys who were having sex with their girlfriends not like in the service just in their bedroom And a big one in Berkeley that seemed overall okay, but every time we went, we would try to talk about the sermon during lunch afterwards, and no one could really remember what it was about. And then we went to a startup, aka a church plant in San Francisco. I don't know. I I liked Icon. I thought that 
sort of seemed like something. Mm-hmm. It maybe wasn't. It probably wasn't. <laughs> Do you remember what you liked about it or like why that felt comfortable enough to keep going to? I mean, because people were like a little bit more jaded. <laughs> they were like a little bit more normal. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't, totally. a, there wasn't a lot of pretense. It wasn't like this Sunday morning, the Sunday morning piousness club. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know. They're all just sort of the same. Music's either better or worse. Right, and you're very sensitive about the music part. Uh, Yeah, just like I'll hear every bad note. So like when the band's not very good, uh, I struggle. Because normally like the music's the like more interesting part. But like when it's terrible, it's just like, oh, God. Like if I were in a club, I'd go outside and have a cigarette while this band was playing. (laughs) Right. During this time, I wasn't without a faith community. It just moved online. And I found that that community was growing like gangbusters between 2016 and 2020. I went to the Evolving Faith Conference with Annie and my mom. And then I brought Aaron with me in 2019. We did find our people, and they were just as pissed as we were. I mean, it was interesting seeing that there were sort of so many, or sort of this growing movement of sort of the ex-evangelical. So that was interesting to see. I think that for me personally, sort of felt like an outsider to the whole thing. Just because it was uh, Rachel Held Evans had passed away and definitely the vibe was all very heavy with that. And that was a big focus. And I had never heard of Rachel Held Evans. I mean, maybe you had mentioned her, but so... The interesting part for me was seeing that there were so many people just sort of like, what's next? But uh, that event only kind of felt like an acknowledgement that there are a lot of people who don't know what's next. But to me, it offered no vision of the future, which sort of just seemed like, okay, well, cool. It's nice to meet all of you. (laughs) Good luck (laughs) on whatever you go do. After this. For Aaron, there was a final nail in the coffin, a rejection of what we grew up in. And it wasn't a moment. It was a presidency. I mean, I did find it encouraging. I mean, because we were like mid-Trump presidency at that point. Yes. So like depths of despair. (laughs) So I did find it encouraging like, oh, there's... There's a lot of us out there. Like, we're not just alone with all of our, like, questions and bitterness and doubts and right stuff. Yeah, that's like a whole nother can of worms. Just, like, the embracing of Trump by evangelicals. Like, Dude, yes. Like, that just was... I mean, I sort of feel like I had left this whole thing behind me a long time ago. But it was just, like, sort of seeing that was, like, the final... Mm-hmm. nail in the coffin. And and I know people like to say not all evangelicals, but that to me is the same as saying like not all cops or not all 
white supremacist gang man. I don't know. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just like, well, you guys aren't doing a very good job of getting your messaging out if that's really the case. Because mm-hmm. all the polls seem to show that a vast majority of you are like, a-okay with this. <laughs> so that, to me, was the final nail. It's just like... I don't know what it is that you guys believe, but I can't trust anything that you have to say. Do you? Because see- I don't think you really believe it. Yes, not all Christians supported Trump, but he's right about the messaging problem. We kept hearing that 78% of white evangelicals voted for Trump. That's our people in the EWCCCV. But looking more broadly, non-white evangelicals, 32% were Trump voters. Amongst other white mainline Protestants, 50%. And black Protestants, only 7%. So saying not all Christians, similar to not all cops, may be true, but it's used as a tool to avoid looking critically at your group and doing something about an issue. Do you see a connection between the ideas and environment you were raised in and this whole Trump thing that that happened? Because to me, like at the at least at the beginning, it was like jarring. I'm like, how do all of these people think that, that this person is a good leader? Like it didn't make any sense. I mean, yeah, I agree. Okay. It, it was weird. Like before I thought it was just me being rebellious and maybe still just being rebellious towards like how I was raised. But... For that, in that moment, that was the, no, I, it's not rebelliousness. Like I'm, I think I'm ready to admit to myself that I reject what it is Yeah. that you were telling me. Right. Because it is as hollow as I thought it was. Right. You had like tangible proof that it was rotten. Yeah. Like, oh, it's not just me. Yeah. And tangible proof of like. Yeah, the consequences. Yeah, I thought maybe there was just something wrong with me that I cannot connect Mm -hmm. to this messaging the way it seemed like people were. And then like that happened and it was like, oh, you're not either. You know, just sort of saying like, oh, you have no problem embracing a leader who, who actually actively acts against, you know, your closest, dearest held beliefs and that you do not care about the least among you or whatever that verse was. I don't quite recall, but very much just not giving a f- about those outside of your little Sunday morning social club. You cannot downplay the impact of Trump's election and what happened during his presidency, including four plus years of women's marches, the murder of George Floyd, racial justice protests, the rise of white supremacy, a pandemic, the isolation we've lived in, the division and hostility. For many of us raised in the church, there was this bubbling horror as we slowly turned and realized the call is coming from inside the house. Here's the tiniest piece of that impact. 
the church and scripture and empire all used as a weapon. I will talk religion with them. Yeah. Politics, no. No. Because they're hardcore Republican, hardcore pro-life, hardcore anti-gay, the whole thing. So, no, we don't talk about that. Oh, my god! My Facebook feed, you know, the more vocal I am on things, I definitely lose a lot of those people. The pandemic year forced a lot of us to just sit with ourselves. And the murders of black people in that year, like, led me to, like, just huge depression in ways that I, I wasn't even fully able to express then or now. But I did know, like, physically, like, I was laying in bed. Um, there's also like anti-Asian hate at that time. They're done with the conservative church. They're done with the, like they've gone through the pandemic and even pre-pandemic and they've had their friends come out and they've seen black folk murdered <laughs> on the street. Like, and they're just like, they're done. You're not going to talk about any of this. Like, this is insane. Mm -hmm. If you change your mind about who you think Jesus is, if you change your mind about who you think God is, if you change your mind about gender, if you change your mind about sexuality, if you change your mind about just politics, government, you are often left with nowhere to go. There's a trend toward religious disaffiliation that has been accelerating. As of 2019, those that identify as Christians in the U.S. has declined, while religious nuns have grown. Across multiple demographic groups, white people, black people, Hispanics, men, women, in all regions of the country, amongst all levels of educational attainment, etc. Over the last decade, Americans who say they attend religious services at least monthly dropped by 7%. Church attenders are now outnumbered by those who go occasionally or not at all. And here's what's in the details. Yes, many people have and are choosing to leave the Christian faith completely for major valid reasons. Check out the hashtags Exvangelical or Church 2 or Recovering Christian or Faith Trauma or Exfundi or Toxic Faith. And then there's folks like me who would like to continue following the teachings of Jesus, the definition of Christian, but don't have a safe place to do so in community. So I like the term evangelical refugee as a descriptor, certainly not because we have similar circumstances to actual refugees fleeing their country of origin, but because I feel forced out. The church was our home. There were messages of love and belonging. And now it's a hostile entity toward me. I am not a lost sheep because I am not alone out here. Here's Aaron talking about a non-evangelical church that we visited recently. So you're willing to try. Well, you have tried Sunday night service one time and you're willing to go again. Yeah. Why are you willing to go again? Because like these people are the most jaded people. <laughs> Like, I, I finally feel like uh, I have found a crowd that is like us. Like, not all of them are sure why they're there either. <laughs> but they're there. That's so true. 
Yeah. <laughs> Plus it's like ran entirely by women. It seems like, so that's a, that's a different experience. Yeah. Hopefully they don't start talking about their smoking hot wives during the <laughs> sermons. I mean, if they did, that'd be kind of interesting. I haven't heard that twist on it yet. I mean, yeah, but you don't want like, what, what's that saying? New. Yeah. New, new wine and old wine skins. <laughs> that sounds like some sort of churchy bullshit. It is. <laughs> I was leaning more towards new boss, same as the, I don't know. There's some sort of saying there. But yeah, I get what you mean. Uh, yeah, I'm looking for something that feels more authentic, and maybe this is that. I don't know. We shall see. We shall see. Streams of mercy never cease. Call for songs of loud In this series, I'm going to talk to folks who feel rejected by the church harmed by it, and in many ways are disgusted by it, but for some reason have a desire to be part of one. Some have had distance and are now actively working to make change. Some found a church home, and some, like me, have not. I read a study recently that listed all the reasons people don't go to church. They're stifling, fear-based, shallow, judgmental, unfriendly toward doubt. But the same study suggested that there is an underserved group of believers who seem like they'd actually like to go to religious services if only someone could help get them there and welcome them when they arrive. So again, we're not lost. It's just no one is looking for us. I hope you will look at us. These are brave folks who said yes, and in their honesty, they face simultaneous judgment, being not Christian enough for some and too Christian for others. Please hear our stories that are too nuanced and diverse to fit into a clickbait article about religion. You'll also meet folks who have intersecting stories with our evangelical friends, including Reverend Maggie, I could think that I was doing the most important, like I'm writing this like theological treatise on whatever something something I'm studying, and like I still have to go pick up my dog's shit. Right. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> and Reverend Spencer. It is really weird to navigate dating as a uh, an Episcopal priest, especially as a female <laughs> Episcopal <laughs> priest. Like, it's a weird yeah. thing. Here's where we're going in this series. Join us. There is a whole evangelical world that acts cool, but is actually really nasty behind their coolness. He literally looked at me and said this. He's like, oh, I can see that you're no longer playing the same game that we're playing. Always asking about, like, what is the truth? The truth of who we are, the truth of who God is. And that was something that I could not escape. When you walk away from this stuff, you risk losing everything. Reform is always happening at the local level. And then eventually, when there's enough people agitating, the change can start to come to the top. And I was like, at that point where I was ready to like believe that it was actually the system that was wrong and it wasn't me. So along the way, we made a very public uh, shift to become an inclusive church for LGBT and lost 
millions of dollars and like tons of people, half of our people or something like that. I know that somewhere out there I'm representing something for someone, a future in a church that they can have. The intense tension (laughs) that humans could experience, but also like that's where love and intimacy are also at work. This is what like oneness looks like. Whether or not you're saved is almost not the question. Okay, not all Christians are the same. 